Alrighty, and we are rolling. This is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast, and I am your host, Alex Painter. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a warm and relaxing holiday season spent with family and friends and any of your loved ones, and hopefully getting a little bit of time off work as well. I know I was able to spend quite a bit of time with my family, and I got a pretty substantial amount of time off work, I guess, and so I definitely enjoyed it, definitely did a little bit of relaxing, and somewhere in between there, hopefully you all caught the Notre Dame victory in the Camping World Bowl on December 28th. So for those of you who may have missed it, the Fighting Irish took care of business against the Iowa State Cyclones in a convincing fashion with a tidy 33-9 victory in Orlando. This win was really impressive and really nothing negative really can be said about it. I mean, honestly, the only negative is is that we just saw, we witnessed a lot of guys last game in the blue and gold, but that kind of happens every year around this time. But I think it was a really good exclamation point to end an otherwise fine season and a great game to move into the offseason with. So with an 11-2 record, this is Notre Dame's eighth time to reach that mark in school history. So you also witness history. I know the bowl game was much maligned and a lot of people weren't very impressed with the, the placement and you know, and I totally understand that. But the Irish did improve to 5-4 and four in bowl games under head coach Brian Kelly. So some big news that's kind of happened since we last spoke was that quarterback Ian Book will be back for his fifth year. After kind of a shaky start to the season, he really did settle in and found something of a rhythm, particularly after that Michigan game. It was actually really impressive to watch. And so this really stabilizes the position. And, I mean, truthfully, the offense. And, you know, Book did, in fact, complete one of the finest seasons ever by a Notre Dame quarterback with over 3,000 yards and 34 touchdowns. And this is really important that he is coming back. And I know a lot of people have a lot of, of to say, and if you read the tea leaves about Notre Dame's backup quarterbacks, but here's why it's really important, I think. And that's because we don't know who he's going to throw to. Having a veteran quarterback is going to aid the whole program next year because, his top three receivers from this year, Chase Claypool, Cole Komet, and Chris Fink, who caught 150 of his 240 completions, good for right about 63% of them, will all be moving on. So Claypool looks like he might be a late-round draft pick. We'll see how he does at the Combine and all of that. So he'll probably get, I mean, he'll get picked up by an NFL team. Uh, it just depends on whether he gets drafted or not. So Chris Fink is a guy who's probably going to be undrafted, uh, more than likely undrafted. He might catch on a rookie minicamp or something like that. But Cole Komet is, an, is one that, uh, you know, there for a minute he had us kind of thinking he might be back for his, his senior year. But, you know, I think he was probably listening to some of the pundits who a lot of them have him as the best tight end in the country on the NFL draft board. So I can't possibly blame him for departing as well. But we'll talk more about roster composition in a future show. So as a friendly reminder, if you dig the show, you can find it on Apple Podcasts. So if you have an iPhone, just click that purple uh, podcast icon. Subscribe um, and give five-star rating. So Spotify, also on Spotify, as well as Podbean at onwardtovictory.podbean.com. Please, please, please like, subscribe, do whatever you got to do to make sure you're getting all the new episodes. 
You can interact with the show on the Facebook page. I call it HQ headquarters at facebook.com slash onward to victory. If you'd like to send the show a good old-fashioned electronic mail, yes, I mean email, feel free to, to send one at onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. So if you'd like to elevate your personal status to consensus all-American level, you can do so very simply. A $10 donation to the show will sponsor an entire episode and get your name called out as a consensus all-American over the air. So we've had several do so already, but you can donate at paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation or if you want to donate a certain amount per month visit patreon.com slash onward to victory podcast i sincerely hope that you know that from the bottom of my heart all of the support is so greatly greatly appreciated so uh, you know, this includes liking any of the, the posts on Facebook, listening to any of the episodes, sharing the episodes, corresponding with the show. Um, all of these uh, mechanisms are 100% free and greatly appreciated. So if you heard the song that served as the theme for the show, that song is called Knut Rockney, and it is produced by, uh, by Joseph Rakish. So you can find that song and all of Joseph's other songs as well at Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, basically, yes, wherever you get music. So if you're like, where is that song? Where can I find that song? You can find it on any of those platforms. And again, like to give Joseph a special thanks for allowing us to, or allowing me, I should say, to, to use the song as our theme. I think it fits really well. So anywho, here we go. Episode 14. In keeping with the show's tradition of assigning a player to represent the episode who actually wore that number, episode 14 could very easily be the Johnny Latner episode. Latner was one of the best players in Irish history and won the Heisman Trophy back in 1954. It could also be the subject of a previous Onward to Victory episode, Emil Red Sitko. None other than the Fort Wayne Flash. Now, if you're curious who that is, do yourself a distinct favor and listen to episode 9, released this past October. So it could also be Deshaun Kaiser, the Deshaun Kaiser episode, I should say. Um, one of uh, Notre Dame's past quarterbacks had a brief career in the NFL, one season actually with my favorite team, the Cleveland Browns. Or it could be perhaps the freshman phenom Kyle Hamilton episode. So... A lot of good options here. I'm actually going to be something of a homer and give this one to show favorite Red Sitko, who led the team in rushing for four years in a row, 1946, 1947, 1948, and 1949. And he is still the only player in school history to pull off that feat. So, all right, this one is for Red. Just to give a quick history lesson, I suppose, of the show. It began in June of last year, 2019, during very much what we considered the football, quote, preseason. So this episode constitutes not only the first episode of the year 2020, and truthfully of the decade of the 2020s, but it's also our first episode that can be considered a, quote, off-season episode. So now without games to cover, this is going to allow me some flexibility in what we talk about. So don't worry, just so you know, I still have a recruiting episode and a way-too-early 2020 season depth chart episode in the works. But I wanted to do something a bit fun, 
for me at least, I guess, something a bit different. And I want to take us back. And I mean back. Farther back than we've actually gone. All the way back to the 1860s. If you're a loyal listener of the show, you've probably picked up on the fact that I enjoy history just a little bit. And I love research. Love it. I actually studied American history with an emphasis in Civil War studies when I was in college, and which I can lend to the fact that I have been an avid Civil War buff for the past 23 years. Quite literally, three quarters of my existence. So how did this begin? I remember being at a store while on a family vacation and asking my mom to buy me a book. You can Google it. It's called William Price's Civil War Handbook, a small paperback book uh, intended for kids who were interested in the Civil War. Um, on the cover featured a picture of a clearly young, smiling Union soldier. And I think the cheerfulness of the soldier on a book about war was interesting to me. It's hard to crawl into nine-year-old Alex's head, but in looking back, that's something I've kind of come up with. But I distinctly remember my interest being piqued. And so I did what many people do in this situation. I opened the book up, plumb to the middle, just to see what I would find and to investigate more. Now, like I said, this was a children's book, and so it was filled with mostly pictures, uh, graphs, maps, and, you know, some words as well, of course. But I'll never forget the image that met my eyes. It was the image of a clearly lifeless boy. The caption read something along the lines of, Dead Confederate boy, age 14, trenches at Petersburg, Virginia, 1865. Something along those lines. It's actually kind of a famous photograph, but I'm sure if you Google that phrase, you will get the exact image that I'm talking about. But I thought, how could this be? The boy wasn't much older than me at the time, so I, I had to learn more. I had to know more. So I turned to my mom and very quietly asked her if she could buy the book for me. And she very discreetly nodded her head. So if you've listened to the show, um, then you might know that I'm the second oldest of 10 children. And if you understand family dynamics, particularly large family dynamics, you understand that if one child gets something from a store, it creates a huge equity, or should I say inequity, issue then when everybody then deserves something from the store. So I'll never forget this. My mom took the book and slyly handed it to my dad, who discreetly bought the book while the rest of us were shuffled off and loaded into the family van. Now, I still don't know to this day why they agreed, why my mom agreed to buy me the book when I, this sounds really strange to say, but it, you know, the fact that I was the only person who got something from that particular store, it just, maybe my mom saw this clear-cut look of curiosity and picked up on it. But honestly, perhaps it was fate. All I know is that ever since I've gotten that book, ever since I received that book, which I was discreetly handed, and then I went to the back of the van and, and read the entire way home. I believe we were in Virginia at that time. I've been a Civil War buff ever since. 
So, just to kind of acclimate ourselves to the period, the Civil War raged in America between the years 1861 and 1865. Over 620,000 Americans perished in the conflict. Recent studies have actually put that number as high as 850,000. This still is the bloodiest conflict in American history. In fact, more Americans died in the Civil War than World War II, World War I, the Vietnam War, and the Korean War combined. The University of Notre Dame was founded in 1842 and was less than two decades old when the fighting broke out in 1861, so it was still a very new college and at that point was still seeking long-term sustainability. Due to this, the school was going to be inexorably connected with the conflict. And so this is going to be a three-part series where we focus on one figure connected with both the University of Notre Dame and the American Civil War. We will focus on a student-turned-soldier, a priest, and a general. I'll be sure to give you a few personal Civil War anecdotes as well during each episode. So as a quick note, these episodes would not be possible without the invaluable source in the form of James Schmidt's 2010 book called Notre Dame and the Civil War, Marching Onward to Victory. It's available anywhere you buy books. Check it out. It's fantastic. Also, would like to give thanks again to the Notre Dame Archives who put just an incredible wealth of information online for free. You just have to be a little bit savvy when you're searching and doing research. But for today's episode... Again, part one of three. We will focus on a Notre Dame student turned soldier, Frank Baldwin, right after this. Frank Baldwin was born in Elkhart, Indiana on December 10, 1844 to parents Silas and Jane Baldwin. At the time of Frank's birth, his father was 33 and his mother was 30 years of age. Frank was the second of three children with an older sister named Helen and a younger sister named Elizabeth. His father was a merchant in Elkhart, having arrived a year before Frank's birth, when the town's population was only around 300 or so people. He was generally regarded as one of the earliest settlers of the area, and widely viewed as one of the most prominent citizens in town. When Frank was 16 years old, he enrolled in the University of Notre Dame in the fall of 1860. This wasn't too much of a geographical stretch, as Elkhart rests just about 15 miles directly east of South Bend. When Baldwin arrived on campus, the first president of the college, Father Edward Soren, still presided over Notre Dame. Father William Corby, who we just may hear about in a future episode, served in the role as Prefect of Discipline, which would have been akin to the Dean of Students. Needless to say, the University of Notre Dame was drastically different then than what we are accustomed to now in the 21st century. For example, room and board 
for a year was only $135. And with room and board, you got an English class. What a bargain. If you wanted to take an extra class in Latin or Greek, that would cost you an extra $20. For you value shoppers, if you wanted to take an extra class in Spanish, Italian, French, German, or art, that would only be $12 each. This, of course, pales in comparison to today's tuition plus room and board of nearly $70,000 at the university. Each student was expected to arrive on campus with the following. Six shirts, six pairs of stockings, six pocket handkerchiefs, six towels, a knife, fork, teaspoon, tablespoon, hat, two suits of clothes, a pair of shoes, and a pair of boots. How about something you couldn't bring? Pocket money, strictly prohibited. At this time, there was also less than 175 students enrolled in the school. All males, naturally, as the first female students wouldn't be enrolled for another 112 years. So less than eight months into Baldwin's tenure as a Notre Dame student, there had been much tumult across the United States. In November of 1860, an Illinois lawyer named Abraham Lincoln was voted president of the United States in an extremely, let's call it, sectionally based election. Within a few months after that, seven southern states had seceded from the Union, forming the Confederate States of America, with four more to join later. On April 12, 1861, Union-held Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina, was bombarded from the Confederate artillery, thus starting the American Civil War. The news of Sumter hit Notre Dame like a wildfire of excitement. Student William F. Lynch, who was the commander of the Notre Dame Continental Cadets, fostered a spirit of patriotism around campus. Fresh from having just delivered a speech on the steps of the St. Joseph County Courthouse to the citizens of South Bend. The school newspaper later described the scene, quote, He stood up, tall, soldierly. His Irish eyes were glittering, his face pale. The vibrant ring of the first sentence he rattled out above the heads of the good citizens made them catch their breath. In five minutes, they were frantic. And when a boy told them he was going to the front to shed the last drop of his blood, if needed, for the Union, the audience leapt to its feet. Cheer after cheer after cheer rang out wildly. End quote. So Lynch, flushed with pride and enthusiasm, returned to Notre Dame after his rousing speech and began collecting recruits. Father Soren actually generally supported this endeavor though he did state that students under the age of 21 had to get their parents' permission before enlisting. Perhaps inspired by Lynch's passion, the 17-year-old Baldwin left home and joined the Union Army. He and a close friend trekked to Illinois and joined the 23rd Illinois Infantry Regiment, known appropriately as the 1st Irish. Now, the regiment was formally organized and mustered into service on June 15th, 1861. Just so that everyone is on the same page, a regiment was a smaller unit of soldiers consisting of, on paper anyway, 10 companies of 100 men each, so 1,000 combatants. 
As the war would drag on, the typical Union regiment would actually contain about half of that number due to casualties, sickness, or desertion. But either way, the Baldwin and the 23rd Illinois were assigned to garrison the town of Lexington, Missouri to protect it from the pro-secession forces, including the Missouri State Guard, in September of 1861. After a seven-day siege and subsequent battle, the 23rd and a couple other regiments, numbering right about 3,500 men, surrendered to an overwhelming force of 15,000 Confederate soldiers. Baldwin and his mates, for a time, were prisoners of war. But they were paroled and released shortly thereafter. Though casualties were light at the battle, it did give Baldwin his first glimpses of combat. After he was released, Baldwin then embarked on the 550-mile journey back home to Elkhart, Indiana. Despite having just experienced the horrors of combat, Baldwin decided, still then just 17 years old, that he had more to give to the Union cause. Baldwin had caught wind that a detachment of the 44th Indiana was mustering out to the front lines in nearby Goshen, Indiana. Now, the 44th was based primarily out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, but did collect soldiers from various parts of the northern part of the state. Despite his parents' vocal misgivings, Baldwin once again left for war on January 10th, 1862, with one of his buddies named C.W. Green. They joined Company I of the regiment. In such a short time, the 44th would see an incredible amount of action throughout 1862. Just a couple weeks after joining the unit, Baldwin participated in the siege and battle of Fort Donelson from February 11th to February 16th, 1862. You may have heard of the Union commander who had earned the United States their first noteworthy victory of the conflict. His name was Ulysses S. Grant. Less than two months after Donelson, the unit fought at the Battle of Shiloh, which was the bloodiest battle in American history to that point, with over 23,000 casualties being inflicted between both sides. For a bit of context, the Battle of Shiloh saw nearly as many casualties in a two-day battle that the American Revolution and the War of 1812 had combined. The death and destruction was completely without parallel. During the battle, the 44th found itself fighting in a thick wooded area in the dead center of the fighting, near an area of the battlefield known as the Peach Orchard. The fighting was so thick that the woods actually caught on fire. So many of the wounded immobile soldiers from both sides would actually perish from smoke inhalation. But all told, the 44th Indiana went into Shiloh with 478 active combatants. Of them, 34 were killed and 174 were wounded for a casualty rate of nearly 44%. Among the injured was Frank Baldwin, who had suffered a head wound in the fighting. And he was one of 16,000 soldiers wounded at Shiloh. But he refused to go home and soldiered on with his unit. 
So keep in mind, please, we are still talking about a 17-year-old boy here. So if you're impressed with Baldwin, you would actually be in the same company as his fellow soldiers. And he was promoted to sergeant during the summer. And the 44th served in reserve at the Battle of Perryville on October 8th. Ten days after Perryville, Baldwin was promoted once again, this time to second lieutenant on October 18, 1862. In this role, he served directly under the captain and effectively served as second or third in command of Company I. So on December 10, 1862, Baldwin turned 18 years old. In America today, he was a legal adult. But exactly three weeks later, he was in battle once again. This time at the Battle of Stones River, also known as the Battle of Murfreesboro, on New Year's Eve, 1862. So now Lieutenant Baldwin and the 44th Indiana, serving under Colonel James Fife's brigade, were sent to support the Union right flank along the battle line during the first day of the, the fight. But the effort was badly disorganized, and it became even more disheveled when an artillery shell exploded near Fife's horse, spooking the animal and causing him to run away from the fight. Unfortunately for Fife, his boot was actually caught in the stirrup, and he was drugged hundreds of yards away from the battle. He would escape only with injuries. But without a leader, and facing a withering Confederate fire from both muskets and artillery, Fife's troops, in something of a panic state, were given the order to fall back. So Baldwin and his friend Green, having found cover together behind a tree before the order to fall back was given, ran side by side towards an open field in an effort to help rally the broken, leaderless brigade. As the duo approached a fence, they were still under heavy Confederate musket fire. In an effort to make the battlefield fence climbing endeavor as safe as possible, Green called out to his friend Baldwin, Throw your musket over the fence and then climb! After Green himself had cleared the fence, he turned around to find his friend. But he couldn't find him anywhere. The day after the battle was over, and after 24,000 casualties in a Union victory, Green asked permission to take a half dozen men in an effort to find his friend, who, for all he knew, could have still been in the field wounded somewhere. But his worst fears were realized when he found the lifeless body of his friend, Frank Baldwin, having been shot through the heart on the other side of the fence. Baldwin was taken back to Union lines and placed in a coffin and buried in the hospital yard. About two months later, Baldwin's family came to Tennessee to retrieve his remains, and they were accompanied by Lieutenant Green in exhuming his body. His body was then moved and subsequently buried in the family mausoleum back in Elkhart. Frank Baldwin was just 18 years old. Nearly three decades after his death, a monument was erected and dedicated for all the Elkhart men who volunteered, fought, and died during the American Civil War. The monument has a special plaque on it 
commemorating the service and life lost far too early of the Notre Dame student turned soldier, Frank Baldwin. The monument was funded by none other than Silas Baldwin. And I would encourage you, if the story piques your interest, to get on Google and simply search the Elkhart Civil War Memorial. You will find pictures of it very easily. Frank Baldwin, who gave the last full measure in a just war, was one of the first true fighting Irish. We will be right back. Well, and that'll about wrap up this part one of the series of Notre Dame and the American Civil War. I hope you enjoyed that. I love talking about the Civil War. If there are any Civil War buffs out there, please message the show. Love to talk to anyone about the American Civil War, in addition, of course, to anything Notre Dame football or University of Notre Dame history related. So uh, we will have two more episodes coming your way. Uh, so the second one will be titled The Priest. This one, again, was titled The Student Turned Soldier. And the second one is The Priest. You might have a good inkling, if you've been around campus, not to give a spoiler alert, but you'll probably have a good inkling who the priest may be. And then the third one is The General. And I'm really excited to share these with you. I'm kind of in my element here. I could talk about the Civil War for, for an extended amount of time, and I actually found myself cutting details out of this episode because I just didn't want to share too many of like the very mundane troop movements and all that stuff, but I hope you did enjoy that. And so again, don't hesitate to jump on Apple Podcast. Excuse me, the purple pi- the purple podcast icon. Excuse me, I had trouble with that one. Click subscribe. You'll be notified of parts two and parts three of the series when they are released. And also, you can go back and listen to all the episodes. We've got quite a catalog going now, and I'm getting pretty proud of uh, the body of work that the show has been able to produce. So again, purple podcast icon, or you can jump over to Spotify or Podbean at onwardtovictory.podbean.com. So again, jump over to the Facebook page, facebook.com slash onwardtovictory. Like and follow the page for all the latest news, analysis, insight, opinion, all of that. And again, if you'd like to become a consensus All-American, you can do so. A $10 donation to the show will sponsor an episode and get your name called out as a consensus All-American over the air. So again, one-time donation, paypal.me slash onward to victory. Again, that's paypal.me slash onward to victory for a one-time donation. Or if you'd like to donate a certain denomination per month, it can be any denomination. All is appreciated. Jump over to patreon.com slash Onward to Victory podcast. So again, I hope you enjoyed that. I just want to tell you you all one last final time that your presence here is extremely appreciated. And I know that there are literally hundreds of thousands of podcasts which you could listen to at any given time. And even amongst Notre Dame football podcasts, there are dozens you can listen to that some of them churn out content couple times a week, sometimes, you know, once a week. I just want to, again, tell you that I'm very grateful that you've decided to come here and stop here and spend some time here. And hopefully you are sensing that this one's just a little bit different than a lot of the other podcasts. There's a lot of diligent research goes into every episode. And 
Hopefully you are entertained by it. I certainly hope so. But, all right. Well, this has been episode 14. The Emil Red Sitco episode. Again, six-yard Sitco. This one goes out to you. And this has been Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Painter. And until next time, part two of the Civil War series, we will chat then. But as always, go Irish.